Welcome to another episode with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and the entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore in the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. How'd you do on your last cold call? Can you detect when you're off your game? Or are you still trying to figure out what techniques are needed to have a successful sales conversation? Jason Bay, Chief Prospecting Officer at Blissful Prospecting, has made teaching others to cold call successfully his life work. In this episode, he continues his two-part conversation as a guest on Market Dominance Guys with our hosts, Chris Beal and Corey Frank, as they discuss developing the techniques and self-awareness necessary in this job. They all agree it takes a fair amount of repetition to hone those sales skills, but you may be shocked to hear them say that just because you've been making cold calls for 20 years doesn't mean you're good at it. Take some time out to check your skills against the ones that Jason, Chris, and Corey propose in this Market Dominance Guys episode. Is your cold calling technique right on? My coach should be able to say, wait a minute, Corey, the last 27 conversations he's had, he's got a hang up past 18 seconds. There's probably, probably something there in his tone not necessarily the messaging that is inhibiting him from moving forward versus me as a rep, I'm going to say, hey, boss, these leads suck, right? No one wants to talk to me. Clearly, no product market fit, right? We've certainly ran into that several times with our clients, Chris. <laughs> really? They say things yeah. like that? Well, they sometimes do. there is no product market fit, but you, you know, <laughs> it's, right. it is interesting when you consider this particular question, if you're trying to evaluate whether your list is any good, whether your targeting is any good or your message is any good, first, you need to have what I call a calibrated rep. I mean, it'd be like going out to measure. I'm going to see how tall this door is over here. But I don't really know if my tape measure measures inches or centimeters or some other ridiculous measure. If I don't know what those little marks mean, if I don't have a calibrated tape measure, I can't tell you how tall that door is in a way that's going to let me go buy another door to fit in that particular door frame. Yeah. And I think a lot of times the most valuable thing in the world to have, by the way, when you're taking a product to market, taking a company to market is a calibrated rep, because then you don't have to deal with this question of, is it us or is it them? You have Jason making those calls. You have Cheryl Turner making those calls. You know, not by what they say, because they can also be calibrated about themselves. They can say, I was off, mm. right? The true professional knows when they're off compared to when it's a situation in the wild. And they're quite happy to say they were off because they're confident that they're usually on. Mm. They know that they can find their way back, maybe with help, maybe with, you know, not with help, but that's a different game entirely. I'll jump over to something, which is, I think it's quite amazing to me that so many modern companies, SaaS companies, attempt to execute their go-to-market with uncalibrated reps and then accept whatever the feedback is concerning their product when they don't even know what the marks in the tape measure mean. They're just clueless. So the trust goes both ways. You've got to trust yourself to be a calibrated rep. You have to know when you're off or at least take a guess. You have that feel sometimes. It's like, oh, God, that wasn't particularly risky. But also you have to have had so many repetitions that the odds of you being off by so much that it's you rather than statistically them, you got to reduce those odds down to where you can coldly now evaluate. Do I have 
either problem market fit, with that's what I'm seeking, or product market fit. By the way, skipping the problem market fit step is a real problem too. <laughs> that one's really common. But you got to have somebody like Jason or people he teaches. Jason, when you teach folks, at which point in the process, as they've learned from you and then they go forward into the great world, do you think that if they're going to become a master where they're calibrated, kind of where does that happen? Or do they know what happens? Does somebody else need to point it out to them? Like, how does that, what is that S curve like when it comes to the, the ones who make it? I'm not interested in the ones who don't make it because that's like me on the piano. Nobody would have cared early because you weren't going to care late, right? It's <laughs> that guy's going nowhere. Let's not worry about him. Maybe you can play for his fiance someday. But when you when you have somebody who is going to make it, who's going to become a master, what is that like? Like, what are the indications along the way that you're getting to that calibrated rep? And it has so much more to do with their business acumen than probably anything else. So how invested is this rep in really understanding the people that they reach out to? So when I break up the training that I do, it's broken up into six weeks. The first week we talk about the approach and, and just the message. Like, what are we saying? Who are we selling to or prospecting to in this case? And I find that 90 plus percent of reps on teams cannot answer a really basic question like, hey, with the chief technology officers that you're prospecting into, what tend to be their top priorities? What are these people working on in these industries? Because there's patterns across these folks, even across different companies. What are they working on? And most reps can't answer that basic fundamental question. They can't start a conversation by talking about the other person instead of talking about themselves. The people that I notice tend to really pick up either phone, email, and I, I look at, we should do all of those things. But the people that I notice that tend to pick up on those things are the people that can have a conversation like we are right now about their prospects. The cold calling, I think, is the more simple part, I guess, to master than actually knowing inside and out the people that you're talking to. So that's the thing I'm looking for first is the business acumen and really understanding the people before anything else. And keeping with that same thought, Jason, does that have to do, do you think, with that ability to taste, that ability to have, I've lived under pressure, I have the thousand yard stare, right, as Chris is talking about, you can't taste unless you're under pressure, right? Do you think the reps that do get it, have they just lived longer, not necessarily duration-wise, but have they lived through more exploits? Or is it they see the world differently? Or do you put that square on the feet of the trainer, of the organization? I think it's everything that you just mentioned. If I had to put a, more weight on one thing than the other, I'm just thinking of reps that I work with that are very good on the phones. They don't have the most amount of experience on the phone talking to those people. And I kind of look at it like this. You said worldview. There's a worldview that people have in sales that just because I've been doing it a long time, I'm really good at it. Sure. I've been making cold calls for 20 years. I'm like, but you ain't that good. <laughs> oh. Like I can pick up the phone right now and make a better cold call to your prospects who I don't sell to than you can. It sounds like you know? what we say, it's I have 20 years experience. I have one year, 20 times, or I have six months. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So I think the worldview is, you know what? What makes me good at something is my skills. Ooh. That's what makes me good at this. And the best reps, especially over the phone, they have this learning 
this mindset of I'm going to learn something at every interaction that I have. There are the people that cold call doesn't go well with Corey and I'm able to get feedback. Hey, sounds like I might have completely missed the mark here. Typically, people I talk to, like you are focused on these things, but it sounds like you're, you're not. Can I get some feedback? What what could I have said or or mentioned that's related to something you care about? They're able to get that feedback and they write that stuff down and they build it into their script and their talk track. They revamp their emails with that messaging. So I think it's this constant iteration of the message and it being very much about the other person and what they're working on and problems that get in the way and that sort of thing. It's mastery of that first and a commitment to really understanding who you're prospecting to and selling to. Then the stuff you say over the phone and the things you say in an email are actually pretty straightforward if you understand that stuff. Tim Ferriss, right, who wrote Tools of Titans, Tribe of Mentors, Four Work Week. Yep. He had a show on a few years ago. Um, Chris, I don't know if we've ever spoken about this fascinating show, and it was called the Tim Ferriss Experiment. Yep. And, and it was only on for, I think, one season, right, Jason, or something like that. And he would do things. You talked about under pressure, Chris, and what you and Jason are talking about that made me think of, I'm going to learn Tagalog, right, Filipino, in one week. I'm going to learn to play the drums in one week. What was another one? I'm going to learn to swim one mile in the open ocean in one week. Parkour in one week. So all these incredible left brain, right brain type muscle to memory type of skills in one week. Now, a lot of us, especially coming up on the new year, are going to have New Year's resolutions and I want to do X and we do Y and I want to climb Everest. And right. But what he did is in one week, he put pressure on himself, Chris, that there was a penalty. And the penalty was, if I got to learn drums in a week, I'm going to play, and I forget what the band is, one song for Journey at the LA Coliseum at the end of the week. And so if I don't learn this, I am internally embarrassed in front of 15,000 people. I'm going to learn Tagalog and have an interview by a Filipino station live in one week from now where they're going to only speak Tagalog back and forth, right? And so he went, and it sounds like a lot of your approach, Jason, that you teach these reps, is I want to deconstruct everything that I can learn in a language, open swimming, drumming, parkour, and condense it into the 80-20. Yep. And it's a lot like flight school, I think, in a lot of ways, Chris, what you guys have created here. But I have a penalty, right? I'm going to be thrown into it. I don't need 60 days to learn how to sell. It sounds like both you guys are doctors where, hey, just sometimes you just got to throw yourself into it to get that scar tissue quickly, to know that you're not going to get bruised, to experience that thousand yard stare. But that's really what was the birth of flight school this past year for you, right, Chris? Oh, yeah. Flight school came out of an act of desperation. You know, I was helping out a company down in San Antonio, Texas that had had a very unfortunate event occur and they were in receivership and uh, CEO founder who I, I really felt strongly should have a chance kind of was up against it. And he asked me whether they could have a special deal and they connect themselves really dangerous to give special deals. It's like punching a hole in the side of a tire and then saying that you're going to go for a fast drive on a racetrack. It's not so good when you have a special deal out there, letting everything leak out. But I thought, hey, we have extra capacity money on Friday, so we'll give him. I just said to him on the fly, I was walking in the airport. I said, look, we'll give you Monday and Friday unlimited for your whole team for, I don't know, 25 grand for a month. And so then we had that situation. It was a month, not one week, but it was a month. 
And now the question was, well, how are they going to be so good in a month that they can move the needle and save this company? And it was very similar. And flight school came out of that. We realized, oh, we needed to spend half of that month because we only had Monday and Friday. So we'd spend half of that time getting great. That was on Friday. And then on Monday, they'd use it. And then the next Friday, they'd have prep of the lists and everything all week long and then get as great as you can. And we all know in sales, like so many, so much performance art, what you do at the beginning conditions what you can do next. In a golf swing, if you don't take a stance and a grip that has a chance, you don't have a chance. I don't care what you think about your athletic ability. You Nobody's strong enough to make a golf club go where they want it to go. you got to actually get in a, in a position where the physics can work out, right? So what do you need to learn first? You need to learn that. But what do you need to learn and under the pressure of actually hitting golf shots for real? So that's where flight school came out of as real live fire. But, you know, first two hours, you get coached on the first seven seconds only. Because until you're great in the first seven seconds, it doesn't much matter. You're not going to be yourself for the rest of the conversation. You're going to be scrambling, trying to find yourself. So how can you stay yourself for seven seconds? Well, for two hours, have 20 conversations with real prospects under pressure. And find out who you are in that first seven seconds. Yeah. No, that's a beautiful thing. We'll be back in a moment after a quick break. Connect and sell. Welcome to the end of dialing as you know it. Connect and Sell's patented technology loads your best sales folks up with eight to ten times more live qualified conversations every day. And when we say qualified, we're talking about really qualified, like knowing what kind of cheese they like on their impossible Whopper kind of qualified. Learn more at connectandsell.com. And we're back with Corey and Chris. Jason, on your, what you teach your reps in your program at the Bispo Prospecting School of uh, Hard Knocks over the course of six weeks or so, right? Do you kind of subscribe to that kind of deconstruction and then build you back up again? And hey, forget what you know, forget what you think you know. And these are the core building blocks, the two tablets coming down the mountain, so to speak, of what you need to know to get out of the gates uh, quickly and, and successfully. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Tim Ferriss, a question that I write down and he always asks is what would this look like if it were easy? And I think that so many people really complicate outbound. That's great. Yeah. It's really not that complicated when you think about it, you know, like I, I believe you need like six parts. You just need to be on the same page with what the approach is. You need a message. You need to know how to put that message into email and then phone you need to know how to handle a few of your most common objections and you needed some sort of sequence. You know, we're going to reach out to people multiple times or send multiple emails or social touches. So yeah, let's try to distill this down. A lot of the feedback that I get is, Oh, this is really simple. I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to be simple. It's not rocket science. Okay. <laughs> right. We got, we got a structure here. We're not saving lives. We're not doing anything like that. Okay. We're not doctors. All right. Let's just like, we just need a good message and we need to be able to talk to people about it. So to me, it is about that most fundamental basic thing that I come back to is that so many of these reps just don't even know how to articulate what a typical day looks like for the people that they reach out to. They don't even know how to articulate that or talk about their responsibilities or anything. Like to me, that is the most fundamental thing in sales right there. 
What do you think? What do you think, Chris, to you too? What do you think reps do really well? What are you surprised over your years of doing this that, you know, this used to be really difficult of a concept for reps to grasp. But when you see newer generation of folks who are in this profession of ours, or even in certain companies, what are you shocked at that, man, this is actually a lot easier for certain folks than others? Well, I tell you what I see in the younger people that I think is really delightful is that there is more of a tendency now than there was before for younger people to try to take control of their own future. They're learning. They're eager to learn. And if you if you approach like you have, Corey, you know, finishing school for future CEOs is a very different message from sitting in that damn chair and dial until your fingers bleed. It's just a very different thing. I mean, the framing of the opportunity to become great at something and to know why is is really effective with a lot of younger people today. Whereas I think 20 years ago or 30 years ago, you'd find a lot of people who felt like they had to be more mercenary. It's like, I'm doing this because I need to do it to make a buck and it's a thing that I'm going to do. And then they kind of throw themselves in very forcefully into a business that rejects forcefulness. Yeah. And uh, sales really does reject forcefulness. <laughs> it's, there are some people get away with it and then it becomes a famous thing. It's in movies and stuff, that forceful salesperson. But you come right down to it, forceful sales approaches are pretty much guaranteed to get psychological reactance from the other person and your hope of trust is pretty small. So I think that what's interesting to me about younger people is they're willing to think this stuff through, but it means if you're gonna bring them on board, you better help them think it through. And business acumen is part of it. I mean, when you think about it, how many people in sales actually even know the business equation? And fundamentally, when somebody's in business, and, and you, you were to walk them through, I don't mean a PL like an accountant would think of it. You know, maybe it is like they would think of it, but like I would think of it as a business person. What, are, what am I thinking of? What are you concerned about? What are you trying to cover? What is it if your responsibility is for this part of the operation rather than this part that makes you a little edgy because it feels like it's the thing you're not always in control of? It's that kind of thing. That's where sales are made is understanding that stuff. And it kind of comes from the very nature of business itself, not just that business, but business. It's, it's business is a funny thing in a sense that businesses generally are in the process of going out of business. Everybody in any business is a little bit nervous about <laughs> they're they're in a drop of water on a, on a hot grill and they know it. Just that's the nature of the beast. Biology works like that too, but we tend to be confident we're going to find another meal because we've arranged to be in a world where the other meal tends to come regularly. In business, the other meal doesn't tend to show up all by itself. We got to keep going and getting it. And it makes it makes everybody a little, a little edgy. Well, different folks are edgy about different parts of that particular equation. And salespeople who don't get that yeah. can't be empathetic because that's what you need to be empathetic toward. Is mm-hmm. It's like this person I'm talking to is naturally a little bit edgy about something, a little concerned about something, because it's the very nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. Jason, when you hear Chris outline that, what's your philosophy on finding pain or finding that, that hook point to identify, do you verbalize it? Do you put it up front? Do you save that for the discovery call? What's kind of your philosophy on that to kind of make that connection with that prospect with status 
but then turn it to, hey, I see your world. I'm familiar enough with your world. I've walked the same trails that you have. What's your opinion? I think it depends on what kind of people that you're reaching out to. I'm a big fan of Skip Miller's book, Selling Above and Below the Line, that concept. What I find is that salespeople tend to overuse pain messaging and problem-centric messaging on executives, VPs, and C-levels that, I don't know, Chris, do you wake up in the morning and think about all the problems you got to solve that day? Or are you thinking a little bit more forward into the future about aspirational type of things? And it's not that one is better than the other necessarily, but I find that more aspirational type of, I want to accomplish this over the next six, 12 months is more how executives think. And the, below the line, the manager type folks, maybe even directors at small companies, people using the product, they're experiencing pain on a daily basis, <laughs> right? So the frustration of this process or using this spreadsheet or this manual task and doing that, they're feeling that a little bit more. So to answer your question on cold calls, I'm a really big fan of talking about what people want to accomplish. And I'll give you an example. I work with a company that sells an automated robotics solution that replaces welders. So it's hardware as a service and software as a service. The talk track that we worked on that worked really great for these VPs operations they're reaching out to was permission-based opener like you guys recommend. I, I do something a little different, but it's, uh, hey, Corey, Jason with ABC Company. I know I probably caught you in the middle of something. You got a minute for me to tell you why I'm calling? You can sure. let me know if you want to keep chatting. Bam, yeah. prospect says yes, nine out of 10 times. Um, great. Uh, I'm talking to quite a few VPs of operations and trailer manufacturers right now. I'm usually hearing one of two things. Yeah. One of the things that we're hearing a lot right now is there's a really big focus around how do we get more welders on board to meet our manufacturing targets right now? Because we're having trouble keeping up with sales and we can't seem to hire welders right now. The other thing that I hear is you might be working on a lot of these really high custom, low volume products, and you're only able to automate about 50% of those. And you're looking for ways to automate the rest again, so that you can keep up with production because demand's probably really high right now and finding workers is really tough. Which one of those two things are you running across? That just works so well because I'm talking about things they want to accomplish. It's not super problem heavy. I'm not saying people yeah. like you have problems like this and one of your pain points might be this. I'm talking about something that's affecting every manufacturer. Sure. Getting labor, welders. And I'm talking very specifically to people that they talk to, things that they're trying to accomplish, mm -hmm. big projects, initiatives that they're trying to tackle. But you're, it sounds like you're definitely more, instead of painter game, right? Sandler talks about painter game. You're on more on the optimistic the aspirational, the C-level suite. Like I've got to move on offense versus defense yeah. in a mode. If I'm talking to an executive. Sure, of yeah, course, of course. Yep. No, I like that. Yep. Chris, you talk a lot about finding similar, right? Is that, hey, I want an economic, I want a personal, and I want a strategic. Those are kind of the three goals that you've taught me, right? You've taught so many on your pitch. What do you think of Jason's approach there? I love it. I mean, in there, we have an emotional element of it, right? It's frustrating not to be able to find people to move your business ahead when there's a lot of demand. I mean, in the business equation, we kind of have a hidden assumption, which is if there's enough demand, life is good. But sometimes when there's enough demand, life is bad. And it's frustrating. And it's actually a little scary because it's when you lose share. And you don't want to lose share during good times. You don't even want to make hay while the sun's shining and here's the sun is shining and all you can do is go stand around in the shadows and go, God, I'd like to get out in the sun. So there's an emotional element, clearly a strategic element where they're trying to go. 
Yep. Right? Yep. And they're trying to go is they're not just trying to meet demand now, but they're trying to meet it in a way that's efficient and is going to translate into something good when times aren't so great, when efficiency is actually even more important. So looking into that particular future and then the economics are clear, right? If I can make more during times of high demand, I can I can make more of that. So human beings, we tend to run on those three axes. We don't have much choice but to run on them. Emotions determine what we're going to do, the decisions we're going to make. Economics determine what we can do. And our circumstances and aspirations determine what we're trying to do. And those things are all in play in different ways at different points in our lives. And, and therefore, we sort of always hit something unless this person really doesn't want to listen. If yeah, we can yeah. hit those, those well, they self-select, right? Jason, you probably get that a lot. If they respond negatively, they self-selected. No problem. I got a big enough TAM. I'll see you in another month when I call you again because you picked up the phone. At least I know that. Yeah. When they say we're set, I say I'm good. So, Jason, thanks so much for joining us and sitting down. I love your approach. I think as a connoisseur, a true connoisseur of your craft, I mean, you are Tim Ferriss, uh, uh, clearly in uh, deconstructing what makes market dominance really tick. And so I think Chris and I are definitely big fans of your work and we'd love to have you back uh, many times. Let's see, maybe maybe episode 200. I mean, we're, we're cranking up there, Chris, right? So we got a lot of content for sure. So Jason, where can folks find you if they want to learn a little bit more about Blissful? Uh, this has been great. You guys, this conversation, blissfulprospecting.com is the best place. So if we help both reps and sales teams with their outbound. So if any part of what I said stuck out to you today, we got a ton of free stuff there, podcasts, guides, all that kind of stuff. And we also have training programs and things like that too, if you're looking for a little bit of help to shorten that learning curve. So uh, blissfulprospecting.com. Thank you. So please, everybody connect with Jason and uh, consume as much free stuff as you can before you pull out your wallet. So uh, for the market dominance, guys, for Chris Beal, this is uh, Corey Frank. Until next time. All right. Thanks so much, Jason. This is just absolutely wonderful stuff. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer, investor or partner is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's time to really go big, you need to use an uncommon methodology to gain attention. Frame your thoughts and employ a successful sequencing that is fresh enough to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. From crafting just the right cold call screenplays to curating and mapping the ideal call list for your entire TAM, Branch 49's modern and innovative sales toolbox offers a guiding hand to ambitious organizations in their quest to reach market dominance. Learn more at branch49.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe. Subscribe.